you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy, where we're coming towards the end of the chapter. We're getting closer. We'll get there eventually. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that there's all sorts of uh, cults out there, uh, isms and schisms and religious groups who are all vying and trying to draw away disciples after them. And out of all the groups that uh, are kind of dangerous, the most dangerous ones are the pseudo-Christian groups. Those are cults that say, oh, we believe the Bible, and we believe Jesus, and we believe Jesus died on the cross, and we believe you have to believe. And they seem to believe everything we believe. And you can kind of drop your guard and just let those kind of wolves just come on in. Just come on into the sheepfold. But what happens is, is you discover that they believe in a different Jesus. They believe the Bible, but not all of it. They believe that you have to believe and do certain things to get to heaven. And pretty soon you discover that they aren't Christian at all. They aren't even saved. They're trusting in some other man-made religion, some other false system of worship. And when you deal with those kind of people, there's three different questions that you really want to ask. When you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of whether or not someone is on track or not, the first thing you want to ask them is about the person of Christ. Who is Jesus anyways? Some will say, oh, we believe Jesus is God with the small g. We believe Jesus is God, partly. We believe that the God part came upon Jesus at his baptism. Or we don't believe Jesus is God. We don't believe that he was perfect. We don't believe whatever. And that's where you want to ask him about the work of Christ. So what did Jesus come to do? I mean, well, why, why did he come to earth? And they'll tell you, oh, we believe he died on the cross. Well, what for? Well, he was a martyr. But, but why? Well, they didn't like him. Yeah, but why did he die on the cross? Because they crucified him. And you're waiting for that word, atonement. Died for sinners, something like that. But you never hear it. You never hear it. And then you can ask them about the way of salvation. So how do you get saved? And what do you got to do to be saved? And they'll tell you, oh, well, you have to believe. And um, you have to. And then they start giving you things you got to do. Every single religion in the world can be discovered by those three questions. All the cults can be found out by those questions. And today we come to a text that is at the end, towards the end of a section, chapter 1, where Paul deals with false teachers. And not just any group of false teachers. He's dealing with a specific group of false teachers teachers who have crept into the church at Ephesus and they've redefined some terms. They've said they believe certain things, but in reality, 
they don't. And Satan's normal strategy is to bring people in with the same terminology who seem to be exactly right, but in fact are very close imposters. You can imagine how unsuccessful Satan would be if he were to say, Oh, come to me and worship me and you can enjoy a torment in the lake of fire forever and ever. He just wouldn't get very many converts. Not very many people would come around because no one wants to burn in a lake of fire. No, he usually tells you through false teachers that no, this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. When in fact it is not the way, it is not the truth, and does not produce life. And the people that Paul was dealing with are a certain group called the Judaizers. And we discovered that the Judaizers were people who believed in Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he died on the cross. And they believed in the Old Testament as the word of God. And they came into the church and saying they believed all these things, but they also believed that you had to do certain works. Otherwise, you couldn't be saved. We saw an example of this in Acts 15.1 when these Judaizers came down and said, Hey, if you aren't circumcised, you cannot be saved. So yeah, we believed in salvation by grace through faith plus works, which really means you don't believe in grace and you don't believe in faith and you aren't saved. If you are trusting in your works, then you aren't trusting in Christ. And if you are trusting in Christ, you aren't trusting in your works. And so let's just follow along, and I want you to look at verse 3, and I just want to remind you of the context, because it's so critical in understanding our passage that we remember where we've been and where we're going. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Paul instructs Timothy to stay on at Ephesus because there were certain men teaching strange doctrines. And verse 4 says they are also teaching myths and endless genealogies. He said these things were just giving rise to mere speculation. They were not promoting the work of God. That is why Timothy was to stay there at Ephesus. And Paul, in contrast to the false doctrines, myths, and genealogies which produce speculation, says the goal of our instruction, the the goal of true apostolic teaching, is love. Love for God and love for one's neighbor. And we went into great detail about how that was. But he says, some men straying from these things, what? Love from a good heart, a pure conscience, and a sincere faith, or, yeah, I think I got those mixed around. I think it was uh, a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. There you go. He says, some men straying from these things, turning off the path, going in a different direction, these men end up producing fruitless discussion. And then he gives a little profile of these people in verse 7. And this is where we really begin to understand that they are, in fact, false teachers. Notice what he says. First, he says they want to be teachers of the law. They want praises of prominence. They want to be seen as rabbi, as teachers. And then the other thing he says about them is they're ignorant. They don't even know what they're saying. And the other thing he says about them is they make confident assertions about what they don't know what they're saying. And that is the characteristic of these Judaizers, men who have crept into the church, who know the law saves, who knows that they are righteous by keeping the law, and know that you have to do certain things law or you can't get to heaven, but it's all false. It's all false. 
And so Paul, in verses 8, 9, and 10, begins to refute doctrinally why they are wrong. He says the law is good if one uses it lawfully, which according to verse 5 should be to produce love. We notice that the law was a tutor to lead it to Christ. It was, it was given that men would become under conviction, and then having come under conviction, they would be led to faith in Christ, and then the law would be used as a means by which men could express their love to God. A means to learn what God was like to equip us for every good work, but not to save us. And then he lists all of these sins that the law is for unholy, profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers. He says, it's not for the righteous person. If you think you're righteous, you don't need the law. You don't need salvation. If you think that by your good deeds, you're somehow in favor with God, he says, huh, you don't need the law. He says, law is for wicked people. And pretty soon he's going to describe himself as a wicked, wicked person. And he says, after listing all these wicked behaviors, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, and we said that is very interesting because he says those wicked deeds are not contrary to righteous behavior, but sound teaching. Because whenever you teach not sound teaching or unhealthy teaching, literally in the Greek, it begins to produce wicked behavior. And then in verses 12, 13, and 14, which we looked at last week, we discover Paul has switched now. Some people says, oh, Paul is now, he's derailed here. I mean, where, where is he going? This doesn't seem to fit the context, but no, it does. He has now doctrinally refuted them in verses 8 through 11. And then in verses 12, 13, and 14, he begins to preach grace to them. And he's using himself as the key example, the key model of what grace can do to a man who is totally sold out to justification by law, to righteousness, which comes by law, to salvation, which comes by law. Being a Pharisee of Pharisees, being deceived, being extremely zealous, Paul was the ultimate law cruncher. So much so that he persecuted the church of God. He was a violent aggressor, just attacking, just blaspheming the church. He just hated Christianity with a vengeance, was having people killed, thrown in prison, pursuing them from city to city. He was public enemy number one to Christians. And so he throws his whole life here on the, on the, on the display case so that these false teachers can see, look at me, and I mean, if there was ever a person who was a law fanatic, it's me, but I have something to tell you people. He says, I did not become a Christian by keeping the law. That's not how I became the Apostle Paul. And he basically gives them four different aspects of God's grace that made him into the Apostle Paul. One is that God's grace strengthened him, putting him into service. Another is that God's grace called him to the work of service. Another thing is that God's grace overlooked his sins and saved him. And finally, he describes God's grace as more abundant grace, super exceeding grace in the Greek. And these aspects of God's grace is what turned this persecuting, blaspheming, ignorant, violent aggressor into 
the Apostle Paul, the man that God used to write half the books of the New Testament, the man God used to spread Christianity through the whole Mediterranean basin among all the Gentiles, that man, that extra wicked man, is the man that was saved, not by law, but by the grace of God, the superabundant grace. Now, having refuted them doctrinally, having refuted them by saying, I was saved by grace, he now moves to one more aspect of refutation, and that is what Jesus did and came to do. And so follow along as I read verses 15 through 17. He says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in me for eternal life. Believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here now, Paul is expressing one more aspect, one more truth to these Judaizers and to the church at Ephesus so that they would have a crystal clear understanding that salvation was not by law. And he says... At the end of verse 15, or the beginning of verse 15, is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, and then look at the end of verse 15, to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Now this phrase, trustworthy statement, is used five times in the pastoral epistles. And in four instances, it's used as salvation. In only one instance, which is in chapter 3, when he talks about the qualifications for an elder, he says, if a man uh, desires the work of an overseer, it is a fine thing he desires to do. Well, right before that, he says, it is a trustworthy statement if a man desires the work. And these, this little formula, he says, these things are known by everybody. That's what he's saying. This is a trustworthy statement. He says, basically, everybody knows this to be true. And here, what he says is, that everybody knows is a trustworthy statement, is that Christ's purpose in coming to this world was to save sinners. He says, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Now, mind you, in the Judaizers' minds, they're thinking they're righteous because they've kept the law. And Paul is saying, everybody knows that Jesus came to save sinners. And so this tells them, that if they are going to be saved, they need to come to the place where they admit they are what? Sinners. Because you don't need salvation until you're a sinner. See, if you think you're righteous, you don't need salvation. At least you don't think you need salvation. The word world here, when it says that Christ Jesus came into the world is an important term in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to the earth, the globe, the planet, earth. But usually it refers to something else. And that is the world of lost men. 
the world of lost men. This is how Paul uses it here. It is used to describe lost sinners. Now I'm just going to read John 3:16 and 17, and you probably don't need to turn there because everybody knows that verse, but listen. John 3:16 and 17 says this: "For God so loved the world, and we'll just insert the world of lost men. For God so loved the world of lost men that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world of lost men to judge the world of lost men, but that the world of lost men should be saved through him. You see how that is? That's what it usually means, the world of lost men. It is used in a few other contexts to describe the evil world system that men live in. For instance, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world, the evil world system, and that is passing away. But Jesus, he says, came to this world, planet, to die for the world of lost men. That's what the scriptures teach. And that's what Paul is saying here. And his whole argument is this. So, are you a sinner or not? He's already saying, hey, listen, I was a Pharisee. He says, hey, I mean, if you know me, you know I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. You know who taught me? Gamaliel taught me. I mean, hey, I was taught by Gamaliel. I was a Hebrew Hebrew. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. And, you know, according to the law, I was found blameless. And even though he saw himself as that, post-salvation, he knew he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, and acted ignorantly in unbelief. Isn't that his description in verse 7? They make confident assertions about things they know not. What does that mean? They're ignorant. Doesn't he say laws for the wicked person? What kind of person? Well, you could put in there blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. You see, Paul now, after he says, hey, laws for this kind of person to bring him to Christ, he throws himself into that kind of person. Why? Because he's trying to make a connection to these false teachers and say, listen, I was there, but worse. I was just like you, but worse. And yet God saved me. Why? Because Christ came to this world to save sinners. And I want you to know, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. Now, if you were someone who believed you were righteous by observing the law, you wouldn't need Jesus. And that is why Jesus told the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, hey, I didn't come to save righteous people, but sinners. And he wasn't saying there was a whole bunch of people out there who had achieved righteousness. He wasn't saying that there was even one person out there who achieved righteousness, but that there were some people who thought they achieved righteousness. And until people come to the place where they know they're a sinner, they're never going to want salvation. I had this friend of mine, and um, this guy was incredible. He didn't go to church. The guy didn't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew. He spent time with his kids. He loved his wife. He had a great marriage. And it was so difficult to witness to him. Because, like, what, what do you need? You know, it's like, well, 
Um, I'm trying to look for something in his life where he needs Jesus. I'm thinking, okay, now the guy, he's financially good, and he looks good, he's kind, he's considerate. He just seems so moral. His wife was happy, his kids were happy. I mean, the guy was just so put together that uh, I almost started praying, Lord, could you just destroy him? Could you make him flub up in some area? You know, I mean, do something to him because, you know, I mean, he was better than I was. And some men who think that by their righteous behavior, they don't need Jesus, they don't come. Because to them, hey, I'm good. I'm okay. I'm all right. And it's not until you put somebody up to the perfection of God, the holy standard of God, and say, do you always do this? That all of a sudden you begin to see their sin. And Jesus came to save sinners. That was his mission. He came to this world to die for sinners. In World War II, there was a certain group of pilots, and you probably know about them, the kamikaze pilots. These were kind of early versions of the self-guided missile. The, um, it was. The, um, the Japanese could see that the American fleet was huge, that the American military machine was just ominous, that they couldn't outnumber the soldiers. They couldn't produce what the United States could produce. But they thought they had one thing that the Americans didn't have, and that was more men who were willing to lay down their life for their country. And in battle, as they were flying in the air, there were times when their planes would malfunction and they couldn't shoot anybody down, and they had a few pilots who just in the, in the spur of the moment just ran their plane into an American plane in order to just take out the enemy. And this began to give them an idea. Maybe we can train pilots to do this. And so they did. They trained a group of pilots called the Kamikaze pilots who would load up planes full of explosives. And they would have a funeral before they left, knowing they would never return. It was their mission to die for their country. And they thought, this will demoralize the humans, it will take out the target, and it will protect our country from possible invasion. And so they left on a mission, knowing they would never come back, that they would die for the cause. And that is exactly what Jesus did. In eternity past, he knew that before he even entered into the virgin's womb, that he was going to die. And he came to this earth as a baby, grew up knowing he had a mission, knowing he was going to die all along. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from the Father. He knew he was coming to earth, and that's why Paul says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love that statement in Romans 8, I think it's around 32, that says, um, He who did not... Spare his own son for us, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? God delivered 
his son up for us all. And if he's willing to do that, then just think of what he's willing to give us. That is Paul's point in Romans 8 towards the end. So Christ came to earth knowing that he would crash his body in order to bring salvation to the world of lost men. But just knowing these facts doesn't save you. Demons know these facts. What you must do is repent of your sins. What you must do is see yourself as a sinner. You need to let God's law work in your heart so that you see, I fall short, wrath is coming, I deserve judgment. Then, and only then, will a person repent and receive Christ. You don't repent from something you don't need to repent from. And the shame of it is, is the church through the ages has really um, muddled up the whole gospel. I mean, when you look at what happened in Jesus' ministry, he came preaching repentance. He sent the apostles out preaching repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. You see in Acts, they preach repentance. That God is commanding that all men everywhere should repent of their sins. Because there is coming a day when God will judge the earth through the man who he has appointed king. That is the gospel. That Christ died on the cross, that he was buried and rose again, and that you need to repent of your sins and to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. But now, the church, instead of just coming away with just what the Scriptures teach, have decided to have people go forward. What's that? To make a decision for Christ, you know? And I always think, well, can he make his own decisions? To pray a prayer. To ask Jesus in their heart to make a profession. What is that? I mean, do you see that in the Bible? No. You see people called to repentance. You see people understanding that they are sinners and having a change of mind up here which makes them want to change directions, do a 180 to turn away from their way, to turn towards God's way, that is repentance. To receive Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for them and their sins. That, people, is the gospel. It's not that complicated. And what happens is, is the church has, has, you know, wanted to see the numbers. I mean, we want to see how many people go forward. I mean, how are we going to boast if we can't say, well, you know, we had 37 come up. The problem is, is 37 may come up, but the problem is, is we may have 36 of them who didn't come to salvation. They just came up. They just prayed the prayer. That doesn't save you necessarily. Now there are people who have gone forward and have been saved, and you may be one of them. And you may be one of those people who have prayed the prayer, and it did save you because you meant it in your heart. But salvation is not by means of prayer, by means of going forward, by means of making a confession. It is by repentance and faith alone, through grace alone, which God provides the sinner. He grants us repentance leading to salvation, the scriptures say. And that is why Paul says here in verse 15, Whoa! Everybody knows Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Judaizers, who think you aren't, 
Then look what he says in verse 16, that Christ has great patience for you. He sees himself as not only the sinner, but this foremost of sinners. He says it at the end of verse 15, and then again in verse 16, notice what he says. Yet for this reason, after he says, I'm the foremost of all, for this reason I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In the Greek, Paul emphasizes that it is he himself emphatically. In other words, it is me and me alone who is the chief, foremost, protos, first sinner, not someone else. And some people said, well, Paul's exaggerating here. I don't think he's exaggerating. I don't think he's using hyperbole. But I also don't think he's saying I am the most wicked person out there either. So what is he saying? I think he's saying this. The kind of sins I did as an unbeliever, the kinds of sins I did, blaspheming, persecuting, attacking with all my might the church of God and the saints of God have made me the worst kind of sinner you can be. Other sins are against your own body, your own person, against other men, fleshly indulgence, all of those things. But Paul's sins were against the very person of Jesus Christ himself. Remember what Paul or what Jesus said to Paul on the Damascus Road after he struck him down blind to get his attention? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not the saints, me. When you persecute the church, you persecute Christ himself. And so Paul sees himself as this first and foremost of sinners. And there's an important thing to to note here, which is practical, and it's kind of a deviation. I don't think Paul had this in mind, but I just want to say it anyways. Is that notice how Paul saw himself. Did he see himself as a good person? A pretty good guy. I mean, he saw himself as, you know... I've got my self-esteem to maintain. We've got this, this lie being fobbed off in the church today that you need to feel good about yourself. No, you don't. You need to feel accurate about yourself. And what's accurate about yourself is you are a sin-cursed, pea-brained, violent aggressor, a worm, a proud dust person. We all are. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God, not even one. There is none who understands. All have turned aside. Together we have all become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. That is a profile of the person with a godly perspective. Not that, oh, I'm going to stick this picture up on my mirror, and then I'm going to look at it every day and go, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You look at that picture and go, you know, you're, you're a great guy. You're a great guy. Don't be bummed out. Don't be depressed. Don't be depressed. Just, just look at yourself. I mean, aren't you? You're swell. Look how much more handsome you are than most people. Hardly. The people who teach self-esteem don't realize that Paul saw himself as the foremost of sinners. Paul saw himself in Ephesians 3 as the least, the least 
of all the saints. He saw himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 as the least of all the apostles, that all his deeds were dung, he said. Refuse is how Paul saw himself. And there are many Christians today who would tell you that such thing, that's damaging, man, that's going to hurt your psyche. That's going to hurt your self-esteem. What is self-esteem? Anyways, we are to die to self. The scriptures say die to self. Self is the bad guy. You see, we don't have worth until God gives us worth in Christ. And this is what is so awesome about Paul. Paul is the example of how we need to see ourselves. As just wretched sinners saved by grace. Because when it comes down to it, why do you exist, God? Who saved you, God? Who drew you to himself, God? Who set up the circumstances so you can hear the gospel, God? Who gave you his Holy Spirit, God? Who gave you the gifts, God? Who gets the glory? Well, I do. (laughs) Hardly. Hardly. We have worth because Christ died for us on the cross, because God paid the ultimate price to redeem sinners like us for himself. And Paul saw himself as the foremost in the crowd. The whole self-esteem thing is run by people with good intentions. See, they see people who are depressed, and they think, oh no, I need to encourage that person. I mean, the guy's bummed, he's... He's got trials, there's things in his life which have taken him down, and man, there is. I mean, life is a bummer. I mean, sometimes I'm bummed out for hours at a time. And uh, they think, well, if we're going to get this person out of their depression, we can either give them drugs, and that's what they usually do, or they say, well, you you need to think of yourself, you're a good person. And they try and do this self-esteem thing. When really the key is not to look at yourself as the good person. The key is to say, look who Christ is. Look what Christ has done for me. Look who I am, and yet look what God has done for me. What does that tell me about God? What does that tell me about God's love for me? What does that tell me about how God wants me to be? You see, then when we see, oh man, look at what God did for me, the wretched sinner. Then that should make us get out of our mud hole and start serving him out of love, out of gratitude, out of thankfulness. That God has given us everything we need. He has saved us. He's given us adequate grace, adequate mercy, so we can love him and serve him with all our heart. The key is not to focus on self. Contrary to what many people would say. John Bunyan, who many people know, wrote Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War, wrote uh, an autobiography, and do you know what the title of that book was? Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Guess where he got that title? You're looking at it, verse 16. That's how John Bunyan saw himself as grace abounding to the chief of sinners. It's been my experience that um, as I teach through the Bible and 
um, after I finish this marriage class, I'm going to be teaching a, a class I call Basic Bible Doctrine, which is just kind of one or two nights on the key doctrines of the Bible. And, and, and one of the lessons, and this really surprised me, and I didn't, I didn't uh, expect this at all, but through the years as I taught this study, the study that affects people most is not God, is not Christ, is not the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of angels. It's not the doctrine of the last times. It is the doctrine of sin. And I find this very interesting. People come up to me all the time going, Man, I didn't realize how sinful we are. And he says, Now, I understand God so much better. I understand Christ so much better. I understand salvation way better, man. It is so cool. To see what God has done for us worms. And you know, they never see that until you really grit down and study the depths of depravity. I taught another class and we spent nine weeks studying um, just how sinful we were. And at the end, people are in anguish. (laughs) They're just like, oh, do we have to look at more? I mean, we looked at our wicked consciences and our wicked hearts and our wicked attitude towards God and how our pride and look at all of this just carnality and people were just like, uh, uh, uh. But then when we switched and we started getting into God's choosing us, his sending his son to die for us. And when you see how wicked men are and how holy and righteous God is and that God comes over to our side, becomes a man to die for us, people, that is where it's at. That's when you begin to understand salvation. And this is what Paul is doing here. He says, I am the foremost of all. And he says it was for this reason, as the foremost, that Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. He says, listen, I am here to let you know how patient God is. I am the ultimate example of of God's patience. The word patience here is a compound of two words, um, makros and thrumos. Makros is long or large. You know, we have, you know, macro this and macro that. And thumos, which is the, means tempered or, or temperature. It's like the word we get thermometer from. It means God is long or large tempered. He's, he's long burning towards us. He is patient. The word example is translated from a word that is used to describe an outline or, an ex, or a sketch of something. An advertisement. Basically, that Paul has been long-suffering towards Paul so that he could use Paul as a billboard advertisement for those who would believe. Now, you can imagine that when Paul was Saul of Tarsus, breathing threats on the church, throwing people in prison, that people were just saying, man, why doesn't God take this guy out? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, do you, do you know can, of any person, maybe somebody comes to mind, that uh, is so wicked and so base, you just wonder, why doesn't God take that person out? Why doesn't he just wipe that person out? 
And sometimes, especially in history, there's key individuals that are just so wicked and so base, you're just thinking, man, what is God waiting for? I don't even want to get close to that person because when the lightning hits, I don't want to get singed. And yet, nothing happens to him. Why? Because it's those very kind of people that God wants to save. One of the great, notorious proud individuals in history was Nebuchadnezzar, Mr. Head of Gold, in Daniel's vision. You remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, Mr. Proud, look at I'm Mr. Conqueror, Mr. Empire, you know, you worship the image, if you don't, I'm going to pitch you into the huge hibachi. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there. He kind of gets his act together. You know, I think we ought to do some homage to this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then later on, he starts getting proud. And then he has this vision of this tree and how it's cacked down and everything. And he gets the clear message from God, Stop being proud. I gave you everything you have. So he toes the line, but one day he's up on his roof and he's just looking over Babylon, this incredible city with huge houses and they had moats on top of the walls and big hanging gardens just lush out in the middle of the desert. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built? By my power and my might and my wisdom? And that was it for him. He ate grass like an animal. Lived out there, fingernails grew, is just this big, hairy, miserable creature out there, insane. And you know what the last words of Nebuchadnezzar are? Let me just read you the last verse of the last thing he said. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. It's great, man. God takes big sinners and brings them to massive repentance. Why? So they can be examples. Why? So that when you go to work and you're sitting next to Mr. Carnality, that you don't have to think, oh man, why even share Christ with that guy? Look at him. That guy is the foremost of sinners. Now you need to share Christ. That's why Paul's giving this whole point here. He's actually refuting the Judaizers and giving them an invitation at the same time. Listen, guys, all you got to do is see your sinners. You can be saved. And so often, we... We are repelled by wicked people. And and in some ways, that's true. We are to be separate from the world. That is, we are not to gauge in their practices. But listen, we've got to be in the world, man. We've got to be in the world, not of the world, but in the world, sharing Christ. That's how people come to repentance. And don't rely on some religious event, some concert, some event-oriented thing where the professional gets up there and goes, oh, yeah, well, let Jack save him. Listen, man, I'm not saving anybody. I'm preaching to you so you can go save them. You preach the gospel. And let God lead them to the Lord through his own time and own ways. I am here to equip you so you can go out and you can evangelize and make disciples. That's your job. Well, if you bring someone here and I'm on the right text, they're going to hear the gospel. 
But we've kind of gotten away from our own individual responsibilities in preaching that Christ came and died to save sinners. And you are responsible as a believer to share with other people that Christ died for them. And that He offers them eternal life through faith alone. Eternal life in the text here, when he says at the end of verse verse 16, when he says, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life, is not eternally existing. A lot of times we think of eternal life as eternal life, eternally living. But that's not all that it is. Unbelievers die and have eternal life. Angels have eternal life, wicked ones. Eternal life is a quality of life. A quality of life whereby a person has a relationship with Jesus Christ and receives the benefits of that relationship for all eternity. Do you remember what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17.3? This is eternal life, what? That they may know thee, the only true God, and what? Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That is eternal life. To know Jesus. And what comes with that? Well, you get thrown in with knowing Jesus, you know, redemption and propitiation and adoption and sanctification and, you know, all those shun words that no one knows the meaning of. You get all that with having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. And so Paul is pointing out here that, listen, we need Jesus Because Jesus came to save sinners, and I'm one of them, and he saved me. And that's how I know that the law doesn't save you. Well, all of this discussion about how he came to the Lord and God's abundant grace in his life is kind of building up like a little volcano inside of him. He's got all this pressure. And so he erupts with praise. And that's our last point. Christ prays from you. Verse 17. The magnitude of everything that Christ has done for Paul and every other person who ever believed just pours out of him and he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's verses like these that kind of beg me to preach a six-part series. I think, well, we we do have uh, Thanksgiving coming and then we do have Christmas. I could be finished by this by May. But we're just going to skim over it because we're going to hit some of these other things later. And some people have said, well, is this talking about God or is this talking about Christ? Well, Christ is God, isn't he? Some people say, well, this is talking about God the Father. Well, the context is talking about everything Jesus did. So he's either saying Jesus did all these things, so I'm going to praise Jesus. Or he's saying Jesus did all these things, therefore I'm going to praise God who sent Jesus. But I don't know which one's right. I read all the commentaries and, you know, they're all on equal sides of the fence. And I can see where both sides are coming from. But since Jesus is God and God the Father is God and the Holy Spirit's God and there's only one God and they're all the one God, we'll just say God. (laughs) Now look at what he says. Now to the king eternal. The word king here is the word sovereign, Lord. It's a position a place of preeminent authority. And Jesus exists and God exists as the eternal sovereign with ultimate power and authority. 
And that's why he just says, man, to the king eternal, to the one who is sovereign forever. And then he says to immortal that he is also immortal. He is not only the king eternal, he is immortal. He will never die. God will never die. He will always live to bless those who place their faith in him. And he is also the invisible God. Who has seen God at any time? The scriptures say that Christ has explained him. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God's explanation of himself. And there is only one God. As Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The scriptures testify there is just one God. And it is this God, the God who displays himself in the three persons, the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners of this world that Paul wants to praise. In closing, I want to read a story by, about a man named Thomas Bilney. He was called Little Bilney by his friends because he was so short. And he was a fellow at Trinity Hall in Cambridge, England. And he was looking for something in his life. He was looking for peace. He was looking for fulfillment or whatever. He lived way right at the turn of the Reformation, 1520. And this is what John Fox writes about little Thomas Bilney. But at last, he wrote, I heard speak of Jesus even when the New Testament was first set forth by Erasmus. Now, let's stop here for a second. Erasmus was an early Greek scholar right around the turn of the Reformation who wrote a New Testament in Greek and that it was like the first really cool Greek version of the New Testament that people had available to them for a long time. And most people who are educated knew Greek and so they could finally read the scriptures in in an understandable language. So he says... Even when the New Testament was first set forth by Erasmus, and the first reading, as I well remember, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul. Oh, sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. In 1 Timothy 1. It is a true saying, worthy of all men to be embraced, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief and principal. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. After this, the scriptures began to be more pleasant unto me than honey or the honeycomb. End quote. Thomas Bilney came to Christ by reading verse 16. That one verse. His whole life began to change from that one verse. That Christ came to save sinners. It's incredible. 
And what's more incredible is that Bilney, although he was never this incredible theologian or everything, he immediately went out and shared Christ with another individual by the name of Hugh Latimer, a great, godly man of God who preached the word faithfully. And both Bilney and Latimer died martyrs' deaths for the Savior who came into the world to save them. People, as you leave today, you need to remember that Christ has a purpose for you, that Christ is patient with you, and that God deserves your praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your grace and mercy, you have sent your Son into this world to die for sinners. Father, all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us have turned to their own way. But you have caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon your Son. You were pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, that he might render himself a guilt offering for us. Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated your love towards us and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us and we are thankful that you saved the Apostle Paul, the chief and foremost of sinners, as an example for all of us who would believe in Christ for eternal life. Father, if there is someone here who is unsure of their salvation, if they are unsure that they know you, Father, right now, by your spirit and your word, may you bring them to repentance. May they see their need for a savior. That, Father, no act that they could do would ever save them, but only Christ, only his work, only his grace, and only his mercy. Father, we thank you that we can worship in this place and pray that each of us would be bold to share Christ and what he has done to others who need to come to repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.